All right, we'll go ahead and um, grab a seat and um, we'll get started um, with the teaching. So Lance, did we, did we start the new, the new recording for the sound system? Okay, we, we have our sound system back, our real sound system. If you've been with us the last three or four weeks, we've had technical problems every single week because we were uh, borrowing a sound system. So it's the simple things that I'm praising God for, that we have our real sound system back. Um, but we are uh, nearing the end of a series on the parables of Jesus from the book of Matthew. Um, so if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 25, verse 1, and we'll get started. As we near the end of the book of Matthew, we get increasing detail on the last week of Jesus' life. And as that week comes to a close, and, and the cross begins to loom larger on the horizon, uh, Jesus begins to talk increasingly about his own death and about the fullness of the kingdom of God, which is to come at the end of the age. And, and so, um, if you were with us last week, you'll remember that Jesus used parables to condemn um, and, and confront the religious leadership in Israel. Um, and in a sense, he also used those parables to kind of tell the story of the scriptures up to this point. So, um, and, and the gist of it was, if you weren't here last week, um, that God owns everything, that God entrusted Israel with a special calling and even the leadership within Israel to a very uh, unique uh, calling to reflect God, uh, and that they kind of lost track or even um, openly rejected uh, God's call and design for them. And so God sent his son to them, wh who they are now going to kill, um, and in the aftermath, God is going to give the kingdom of heaven over to a whole bunch of outsiders, the non-Jewish world, uh, who are ready to receive him, including you and me. And so um, that's sort of the narrative arc of the scriptures uh, summed up in, in 15 seconds through the lens of the parables that Jesus was telling. But um, the, the scriptures themselves end uh, by anticipating a future time when this age will end and a new age will begin. And so, too, Jesus, at the end of his life, begins speaking increasingly uh, about the end of this age and the start of the next one. So, we're going to pick up in uh, chapter 25, verse 1, where Jesus speaks of the end of the age. Um, and I'm going to ask uh, Janice to jump up and read the passage for us. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. 
But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But they replied, truly I tell you, I do not know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the hour or the day. Yeah, let's just read that one. Okay. This is the parable of the bags of gold. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I have put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also said, Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I've gained two more. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came and said, Master, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what okay, see, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown, and gathered where I have not scattered seed? Well then, you have put my, oh sorry, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers, so that when I returned I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. For whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Thanks, Janice. Let's pray. Jesus, um, we thank you for your word, um, which is um, sharper than a double-edged sword, which um, if, we're, if we allow it to, will actually... Um, cut us to the core, will transform us uh, from the inside out, will make room for you, Holy Spirit, to do the renewing, uh, regenerating work that you long to do inside the human beings that you love so much. And so would it function in that way for us this morning, God? If there's things that I'd hope to say that aren't of you, I pray that they would just completely fall out of my mind. If there's things that you want to speak through this passage that maybe I haven't thought of yet, would you bring those to mind as we um, study and and meditate and unpack the words that you spoke 2,000 years ago? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, as Jesus uh, reaches the end of his ministry, uh, he speaks to his disciples about the end of the age. And so um, for a context for chapter 25, uh, I'm, I'm going to rewind a little bit and briefly recap chapter 24 leading up to it. Uh, because the more context that we have, the more Jesus' parables will begin to come to life for us. So, 
Uh, At the start of chapter 24, uh, Jesus is leaving the temple where he had confronted uh, the religious leadership in the passage that we looked at last week. And uh, as he leaves, he goes to a private place and his disciples come to him in private uh, and, and ask him questions about the future. This is the question they asked. They say, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And so from this question forward, uh, most of chapter 24 is kind of Jesus going on a a bit of a a rant about events that will occur. Now, some of the events that Jesus is speaking of in chapter 24 are likely referring to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, which will happen in their lifetimes. And so when you read through and Jesus is predicting like future and end of time stuff, oftentimes it's very confusing because some of it sounds like this is all about to happen right now um, and yet we're 2,000 years removed. Why hasn't that happened? And I think that explains part of it, that Jesus is speaking uh, of a time um, just a few decades uh, from his death where Rome will, will march in and wipe Israel off the face of the map, completely destroying the temple. No stone is left on another, so to speak, um, and, and erasing their national identity, scattering them around the world, which was kind of the state they existed in until post-World War II. Um, but uh, some of his predictions actually are speaking about the end of the age. Uh, And I recognize that as we venture into that subject, uh, we're kind of wading into deep water. Uh, And I recognize that there are all sorts of passionate thoughts and opinions and predictions and interpretations and blogs uh, about this topic. So uh, the good news for this morning uh, is that we will circle back around and do uh, and address chapter 24 in more depth later on as we get into the fall and winter. We will cover every single verse in the book of Matthew, just not in strict chronological order. So we will come back to this later, but our job for today is to unpack the parables that Jesus is telling. Uh, And by summing up chapter 24, hopefully we'll gain a deeper appreciation of what it is that he's trying to say. So as you near the end of chapter 24 and these predictions that Jesus is making, you get to verse 30 where Jesus eventually answers their question in this way. He says, Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man, that's Jesus, in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. Next slide. This is the next verse. But about that day or hour, no one knows not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. So, quick side note. Uh, The next time that someone claims to know with pinpoint accuracy the day and time that Jesus will return, and, and they ask for your money in order to help them get their urgent message out to the world, as seems to happen every so often in this country, I would gently suggest that you point them toward this verse. I mean, because if they're claiming to know with with pinpoint accuracy, it kind of begs the question, like, wait a second, how how do you know? 
because the, the angels don't know, and actually Jesus himself didn't know. And what, what was your name again? What, who are you? In fact, Jesus says, the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. So, uh, first off, if you claim to know with pinpoint accuracy when Jesus will return, yeah, probably not legit. But, ironically, if, if half the planet believes that Jesus will return at the turn of the millennium or during the next solar eclipse or whatever, then that is almost most definitely when he will not return. If everyone is expecting him to show up on May 2nd, that almost guarantees that he will not show up on May 2nd. Okay? So um, the next time that someone starts to generate hype around the fact that they know when Jesus is returning, uh, we actually have some really clear verses to fall back on. Uh, but all of this leads up to Jesus' concluding statement in chapter 24. Uh, which is really the, the focus and the foundation of the parables that we'll be examining today. This is what he says. In light of all that other stuff, therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. And, and it's in that context that Jesus unpacks the parable of the ten virgins. Uh, and, and it was common practice in Israel, uh, their wedding ceremony um, consisted of the groom at the groom's house and the bride at the bride's house. And the groom would get his wedding party, his group of, of dudes together at his house and then form a procession from there to uh, the bride's house where she lived with her parents. And when they arrived there, that's where uh, what we would call the ceremony would take place there. And they would exchange promises and, um, and kind of make their commitment before God and, and witnesses and, and do all of that stuff at the bride's house. When all of that was finished, then the entire wedding party um, and the guests and everyone would form a procession back to the groom's house again. And you can imagine in a place where um, it gets dark around 6 or 7 p.m., depending on the time of year, uh, that by the time they made it back, more often than not, it was dark by the time everything was done and they arrived at what we would call the reception, the, the, the party, the wedding banquet. Uh, and so what they would do is um, the bridesmaids, which in this case are uh, unmarried virgins, the bridesmaids um, would wait at the groom's house and they had these large lanterns with um, rags hanging in the lanterns that they would soak in oil. And so they would light these rags that are soaked in oil, and these lamps would kind of light the way in the dark into the wedding banquet. Uh, and so what, what happened in this case is that uh, the wedding banquet or the wedding ceremony ran long. And there are two groups of bridesmaids. And so you have one set who are wise in anticipating the late arrival of the party. And so they stored up for themselves in advance extra oil, anticipating a, a late return. And, and then you have another set that did not go through the same diligent preparations for the wedding party. Well, sure enough, the wedding party takes so long that all of them actually fall asleep as they're waiting. And notice that that's not actually condemned here. 
Um, it, it's just, it just happens. And so someone yells, hey, the party is approaching. Everyone jump up, light your lamps, get ready to welcome them in. They're returning. And so um, everyone jumps up, but only those who have extra oil uh, actually have enough to kind of relight their lamps and welcome in the party. And so the unprepared half say, hey, give us some of your oil. But at this point, so many hours have passed, there's only enough oil for their own lamps. If they give that away, then, then they can't even light their own lamps. They say, sorry, this is, this is all we have left. We were anticipating a late arrival. And the other set run out to the marketplace after dark, desperately trying to find a vendor who might still be open and sell them oil. And by the time they go through all of that and come back, um, the doors are shut. And Jesus tells them, uh, essentially, uh, you weren't real disciples. You, you, you weren't prepared. You weren't in relationship with me. The words he uses are, I, I did not know you. And so those prepared for the wedding party to return come into his joy. And those who are not prepared for his return are locked out. And, and, and what, we're, what we're left with clearly through all of kind of the, the fog and guessing and anticipating and interpreting is one glaring theological truth that we need to grasp this morning. Jesus is returning. Jesus came from heaven to this place. He lived a perfect human life. He inaugurated, we would say, the kingdom of God. He jump-started, opened up the kingdom of heaven, breaking into our reality uh, on earth, uh, over which he is the divine king. And then this divine king, uh, who doesn't act like earthly kings that we know, actually went to the cross and died in our place for our sins, for our forgiveness, so that we could be openly and freely welcomed into uh, this kingdom that is now and not yet. And he died on the cross, uh, but that wasn't the end of the story because he didn't stay dead. Scriptures and history clearly tell us that he was buried in a tomb and, and then uh, three days later that tomb was empty and Jesus was alive again. And, and so that, that kind of begs the, the question as you're, you're thinking through, all of these things are actually connected. Okay, He came in bodily form as a human. He died a, 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 a real human death. He was laid in, and then he rose again. So then he was alive again. Well, did he then die? die another human death? Well, no. Um, he, he actually ascended to the, to the right hand of the Father. And so he's no longer bodily with us, o only through the, the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Uh, but um, even as we examine the ascension of Jesus to the Father, we cannot help but anticipate his return. Because in the very act of ascension, it, it, there's suddenly an angel standing among those who are watching him, who are watching him ascend. And they say, hey, the world is going to see Jesus return in the same way that you've just seen him leave. So, so all of these things from, from the moment Jesus shows up on the scene are all connected events. We, we can't cut off the storyline. And so uh, we're confronted with the fact uh, that Jesus will return. And, and, uh, and my guess is that, that we would not all agree on the details of his return. 
that we would not all agree on the circumstances or how to interpret that or anticipate it or what revelation is all about, uh, but we should all agree in theory that it's going to happen and that as a community, we are actually called to live in light of that fact. And, and, and that's what these parables are about. Be, because when his return be, becomes a, an imminent and increasingly likely event, it will absolutely shape and change the way that you live. So first, Jesus is saying through these parables, don't live as if I'm not going to return. Or, or don't, res- don't assume that my return is so um, distant to be unrelated from your day-to-day living. Don't be like the attendants who just kind of lived any which way they pleased and and then tried to kind of fix it at the last minute after Jesus returned, only to discover it was too late. And and when we first read the parable, we think, well, that's kind of odd. I don't know what he's getting at. But, But I think this is actually a real temptation for us. Uh, to, to live in this way, especially among young people. Uh, roughly half of, of this church is college-age people, people in their young to mid-20s, uh, and you know the opportunities that are being presented to you day in and day out in, in the lifestyle that you are encouraged to live, whether it's through peers or movies or college classmates or whatever it is. You, you are constantly being flooded with an offer to take a hit of that or a drink of this or sleep with so-and-so or whatever it is. And those um, temptations, those lifestyles, pull powerfully on, on, on our young 20-somethings. And I'm barely out of that. I'm in my young 30s. I remember vividly how powerfully those things pulled at me. And, and so there's a reason that we have a missing generation in the American church. And, and that's one of the factors in there. Not, not necessarily in this church, but nationwide, there's a completely missing age gap, which is 18 to 26. And so the typical pattern in America is that you hit 18 or 19 or whatever and go off to college. And the average person in that age group begins instantly living in a way that is completely contradictory to the way of Jesus. And the mentality, literally, for, for many people, especially those who are raised in the faith, is, well, I, I, I can't resist that temptation. I'm going to go live that way, and then I'll come back to Jesus later. Some of you have heard this, or maybe even thought this way yourself. I'm, I'm going to go live that way, and then statistically speaking, it, it's like late 20s, early 30s, those same people, some of them, not all, actually begin returning to the church okay, I kind of did my thing for a decade and and lived in this way completely contradictory to the way of Jesus, but I have plenty of time and I'll just kind of, you know, repent and just kind of go back to to Jesus when it's all done. And, and, And Jesus is saying, yeah, that's not actually an attitude of readiness and reverence. That, that's, that doesn't actually reflect the fact that I could come back tomorrow and you would be completely unprepared. That doesn't demonstrate that you have a living faith in me or that you love me in any true sense of the word. Do you know me? Do I know you? And so if he did come back tomorrow, I think the vast majority of Americans in that age group would would probably realize their mistake, uh, attempt to correct it, 
at the last minute after Jesus has returned and, and, and then find out that it's too late and potentially hear the words of Jesus saying, sorry, I did not know you. And they would have nothing to say in response because they would know deep down in their heart it was absolutely true. And so, and so Jesus... Um, he continues with another parable. And, and I believe that this really highlights the flip side of the first parable. In the first one, we get this picture of this kind of evasive living, doing what I want, not prepared for the, 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 the bridegroom to return, so to speak. Um, and, and I'm going to kind of ignore or, or marginalize or just reject the idea that Jesus will return. Well, the, the next parable that he tells um, is, is not people getting caught on the wrong side of Jesus' return in, in, in a little bit, but really I think what it's highlighting is people who, who are then living in light of the return of their master and then being, being caught on the right side of Jesus' return. And so in the second parable, what you have is, is a rich landowner. And he lends large sums of money to his servants to steward in his absence. And this would have been common practice in the ancient Near East. You have to think of a time when um, there weren't banks uh, or like safe houses to put your money. Uh, there wasn't a stock market to invest in. And so if you had money, as we saw in one of the other parables, one of the things you'd do is bury it in the ground so that like nobody could find That was the bank that they had. But in other cases, if you were wealthy and you had other people at your disposal, you would give your wealth to them and say, I'm not going to bury all this money in the ground. You guys go out and invest this money and do different things with it. Start new businesses, put it on the market, whatever. In one case, give it to the money lenders so they can use it and make interest off of it. Um, and that was how they would grow their wealth and grow their resources in the absence of a stock market. And so in this particular parable, um, he's giving out one bag, two bags, and five bags of talents, which is thousands of pieces of gold. So in today's terms, we're, we're talking millions of dollars. A, a, a very significant amount of money that he's giving to each one of these people. Um, and, and what we see is that um, the first two are, are industrious in their discipleship to unpack that, that metaphor a little bit. They, they take the return of their master seriously. They, they act out of love and respect and obedience to him, and, and they go out and they, they share and invest what God has, has granted to them, and they double it. And the interesting thing is that the one with five doubles to ten, the one with two doubles to four, and yet they're both given the same reward in this parable. Hey, you weren't all given the same amount of time and money and gifts and talents and whatever God has gifted you with, but you did the same thing with it. You, you went out, you risked it, you invested it. You, you didn't bury it in the ground. And so his response, which is the response we all hope to hear from Jesus, is well done, good and faithful servant. Now come and share in your master's joy. Enter into the fullness of my kingdom. Enter into the fullness of my joy. That's the first two. They were like the wise bridesmaids who were prepared for the return of their master. Uh, but, but the other one, um, he, he was more like the unprepared bridesmaids who, 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 wasn't, who wasn't really acting uh, out of love and obedience and anticipation of return. And so uh, what happens with 
uh, the last servant, is really unique in my mind because he, he errs, and in some ways it's like the, the unwise bridesmaid's error, uh, but he errs in a rather curious way because I think he errs in Jesus' absence. He, he seems to have misjudged the character of Jesus. And by misjudging the character of Jesus, it, it, it's then kind of soaked in, it paralyzed him in fear, soaked into his actions, and, and curiously landed him in the same place as the unwise bridesmaids. In response to his lack of investment, the unwise servant who buried his money said this. He said, Master, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and I went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. And one of the theories here is that this servant has actually misjudged the character of the master and it instilled in him such a sense of fear that he was paralyzed in, in operating in his gifts. And, and, and in, his, in his paralysis, in his lack of risk, he did nothing and, and eventually resorted to the same slothful uh, and unresponsive attitude as the unwise bridesmaids. And so rather than seeing Jesus as the rich and generous master who, who has entrusted each one of us uh, with an amazing sum uh, of money, so to speak, uh, an amazing master who loves uh, fiercely and abundantly, who, who actually empowers us to step out in our gifts and talents and time and ability and everything he's given us, and it, some of us, inside and outside of the church, will misjudge Jesus' character and, and begin filling in the blanks with our own picture of who God is. And, and, and as we do that, I think too often our, our false sense of who God is actually causes us to, to disconnect fr from God, maybe even to be in fear of God, but actually to become distant from Him be, because we've misjudged His character and what He's like. And, and and as we do become disconnected, we actually become unresponsive. And as we become unresponsive, we actually slip into this place where we're not risking and investing uh, at, at, because we're loved by him. We're actually paralyzed in fear. We don't do anything at all. We aren't prepared in the slightest for his return. And that's the bottom line. The big theological takeaway from today's teaching is that Jesus will return. The age that you were born into will come to a close and a new age will begin. And though your righteousness is not up to you, though your entry into the fullness of the kingdom of heaven is not up to you, there are a few questions that Jesus is going to ask you when he arrived. And so we'll end with these as you're taking notes. First, Jesus will ask, were you obedient to my call in my bodily absence? We believe he's spiritually present, bodily uh, absent. Peter says it this way. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. 
Does that, does that describe our lives as followers of Jesus? That we cannot see him and yet we love him and act in obedience to him? Or is it because the master has gone away that we've decided to do something else with what he's given us? Are we planning as individuals and as a community to kind of live the way we want to live and plan to come back to him uh, later, attempt to kind of shape up after he arrives, so to speak? Or... Do we live as if Jesus were telling the truth? And, and I think this is the, the benchmark for me. It, it, it's just the thought of Jesus' return, does that evoke in us more of a sense of, of joy and anticipation or, or fear? Because that will actually help determine if, if we're living in obedience. Would it be a big deal? Would we be terribly afraid and caught off guard if he returned? Or would we be filled with joy and anticipation? The second question is, is kind of another angle on the first question. What did you do with the things that I entrusted to you? This is what Jesus asks his servants. Because he's given each one of you as individuals gifts and talents and abilities and capacities and time and money and influence. And he's going to come at the end of the age and say, okay, what did you do with the days that I gave you? What did you do with the gifts that I wired into your being from the day that you were born? What, what, what did you do with the things that I wanted to impart to you through the Holy Spirit? Did you reject these things? Did you bury these things? Did you squander your days? Did you hide it in the ground and say, here, look, God, Here's that thing that you gave me that, that's just been buried all of this time. How, or did you use it? How, how are you using your time, your, your money, your gifts, your talents, your, your vocation? Work is central to what we're talking about right now in, in advancing God's kingdom work on earth. And you'll notice in the parable that he's not focused on the numbers. He doesn't say, hey, you've got 10 bags, you're at the top. Oh, you've got two bags, you're at the back. He, he just says, you doubled what I gave you. Not all of us are gifted in the same way. Not all of us feel gifted with the same number of gifts. But that's not what Jesus is concerned about. That, that's not the answer to these questions. It, it, it's, did you bury what I gave you or, or did you unearth it and invest it? And I think as a young church plant, we are barely scratching the surface of the gifts, talents, abilities, and passions in this room. We are barely scratching the surface. We have so far to grow. Paul says it this way. We have different gifts. This is all of us. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. It means you all have been given different amounts of bags of gold. By the grace of God, each one of us has and Paul's saying, hey, your master has entrusted you with riches. He's, he's entrusted you with something. The scriptures say, God has given to the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, miracles, gifts of healing, gift of helping others, of guidance, of prayer languages, the gifts of encouragement, which we, we just talked about this morning, giving, service, and the list goes on. Those are all of the gifts that he's given to, not to one or two people up front. That's what he's given to you, to the body that is the church. And this is the next verse. It continues. 
He's given it to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith to the maximum amount that you can. If it is serving, we need more people to serve, then serve. That was my paraphrased version. If it, if it is teaching, then teach as if your life depends on it. If it is to encourage, then don't miss opportunities to encourage. Even if you're two years old and you're encouraging your mom, it makes a difference in the lives of the people you're encouraging. Give, if it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, then do it diligently. If it is to sow mercy, then do it cheerfully. Don't bury your gifts. This is the number one way that you can be prepared for Jesus' return. Don't bury the thing that God has gifted you with. And if you don't know where you fall on that list, show up next Sunday and the Sunday after that, and I promise you he'll show it to you. Bring it to your missional community and have them pray over you. Don't look side to side and say, they have more gifts than I do. They have better gifts than I do. Mine don't matter. Mine aren't important. I don't have them. That's not what the scriptures say. Whatever God has gifted you to do, Paul said, and he has given you gifts, then do it wholeheartedly. And, and here's why. So that we can be prepared for Jesus' return. Absolutely. And so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. This isn't talking about the age to come. This is talking about right now. And this is what happens when the church is energized by the idea of Jesus' return. As we unbury our gifts knowing that he could come back tomorrow and ask us what we did with them, all of a sudden, we're ready for his return, absolutely. But we're ready for this. We're attaining to the fullness of what the body of Christ was meant to be. I cannot be the disciple Jesus is calling me to be if you bury your gift. Do you see that? When you bury your gift, you don't just hurt you. You hurt everyone in the church because we cannot be complete until everyone is unburying their gifts. And when this happens, when we all live as if Jesus could return tomorrow, the church will be ignited to a degree we cannot even fathom right now. When we stop looking left to right and saying, well, I can't teach like that, I can't sing like that, I can't. That's not what God's telling you to do. That's not who he's telling you to be. But when we ignite in this way, we will sense the inbreaking kingdom of God in this place to a degree that we have not felt yet as a church. I promise you. There are undiscovered continents of, of energizing, in-breaking kingdom, fullness in Christ sort of stuff that, that requires your participation as an individual. So as we close, Jesus is asking us those questions. Hey, hey, what are you doing with the gifts that I've given you? Are you willing to invest it as if my return is imminent? Um, or, or are you going to fall away? And, and so as we experience that increasing beauty of, of, of the church, we also prepare ourselves to stand before Jesus. Whether that's tomorrow, and it could be because no one's predicting tomorrow, right? Or whether it's a thousand years from now, we'll be, we'll be ready and we will stand before Jesus, not just having experienced a beautiful expression of his kingdom within our church on earth, 
But we will stand before Jesus and hear the words. The goal of our discipleship is to hear the words of Jesus spoken over us. Well done, good and faithful servant. I entrusted you with what you thought was a little and you used it to the maximum amount that you could and now I will entrust you with even more. Come and enter my joy. That's how we live until Jesus returns. Let's go ahead and stand and we'll pray. Jesus, we recognize that um, not just our own kind of salvation entering the kingdom experience, Uh, but actually our experience in this place as a new body, as a new community that you're forming, our experience here uh, actually depends on each one of us unpacking and discovering our gifts. And maybe service or or generosity doesn't sound like the most exciting gift, but we will all suffer in this place if our generous people and our servant-hearted people and our encouraging people tell themselves that their gift is not necessary for the life of the church. It is absolutely necessary. And so thank you, God, that you call us uh, to follow you, not as individuals, but as individuals with individual faiths in a united community. And, And that you will accomplish in and through a united body, something that we could never see, a a picture of you, a sense of you that we could never see in our room by ourselves with the Bible on a Thursday evening. So God, as we move forward uh, as a church, I pray that you would speak to us about our gifts because there's gifts in this room that haven't been fully discovered and there's new gifts you want to give. And we want to be open to both of them, Jesus. And so we pray against fear in this place. We pray against uh, comparison side to side. We pray against judgment. We pray against all the weird worldly stuff that has no place in your kingdom or in your church that holds us back from being the people you're calling us to be. But instead, we pray into this place an air of freedom, Jesus, where the, the, the people who think they're the least important the one-bag people would walk in the fullness of what you have for them. And they would actually be an example to the three-bag people and the five-bag people who are just buried all the stuff you've given them. So Jesus, help us to take hold of the fullness of the gifts that you've given, of the fullness of what you offer. And, and God, would you do what only you can do in igniting this community as we move forward and press into what you have for us. In Jesus' name. Amen.